episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show with another really fascinating guest uh, helping to create a better tomorrow on many different fronts. Um, as a little background to this show, uh, we're going to start off like we usually do with, with some data. Um, it is currently estimated that around 40% uh, of all produce is wasted uh, due to spoilage that occurs uh, somewhere before it reaches a consumer's grocery bag. Uh, and this loss, when you put aside sort of the loss due to quality and rightness standards and so forth that consumers want or don't want, um, also takes into account sort of the global emissions, the fresh water supply that went into producing those crops and so forth, the energy to transport them, represents about a trillion dollars annually, which is a shocking number. Uh, today, we have the honor of being joined by Catherine Sizov, who is the founder of a company here in Philadelphia called Strella Biotechnology. Uh, and they are involved in building novel biosensing platforms that can predict the ripeness of fruits uh, and ultimately use this information to optimize supply chain, reduce food waste, and increase produce margins. Uh, her company, uh, Strella, won the 2019 President Innovation Award at University of Pennsylvania back in 2019, uh, the grand prize at the Arizona State University Innovation Open, the Venture Award at the, uh, the O3 World 1682 Conference, and most recently, uh, excitingly, is coming off a $3.3 million seed round uh, with some really uh, prominent institutional investors, including Mark Cuban, uh, Yamaha Motor Ventures, and Lab in Silicon Valley, Catapult Ventures, uh, Catherine studied uh, at the University of Pennsylvania in molecular biology and chemistry and engineering entrepreneurship. Uh, when she's not doing that, she's also a, a very accomplished fencer. Um, welcome, Catherine Sivo, to our show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is outstanding. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm really excited that you're here, and I'd like to start off like we typically do by handing you the floor for a few minutes just to really talk about yourself. If you could uh, take some time to uh, talk about where you grew up, how you got interested in in STEM, and then you know, I was reading you know a bit about what you did before this, and you were involved in you know uh, in down at the NIH to, you know, doing CRISPR and gene editing fibroblast. Uh, ultimately, how you got involved in agribiotech from that, I think that'd be a, a neat little part of the story. Totally, yeah. So um, I, when I was a young kid, I kind of grew up around the Boston area. Um, and I think my first experience with bio specifically, uh, not STEM um, in general, was that we kind of lived right next to Harvard University. <laughs> uh, and they used to throw away all of their, or donate their old equipment um, to just anyone who would come by. I think it was like on Thursday or something. And so my dad used to kind of pilfer computers and hardware and things like that from, from the, this kind of like garage sale that Harvard University used to do. Um, and when I was a little kid, he would put me in a dumpster, basically, um, because I, that way I wouldn't run away. And inside this dumpster was a ton of biotech equipment. Um, and so that kind of became my playground as a kid. Uh, while he was trying to find, like, computer things, he would put me there. Um, and so I kind of grew up uh, playing with, like, 
unused pipette tips or conical flasks and things like that, and like old PCR machines. And I think what was really interesting to me is that my dad had no idea what any of this was. Um, so it's kind of like an alien world to him. Um, he's an engineer um, and he's very much like on the electronics, uh, kind of mechanical engineering side of things. And so when I started asking about these biological things, he had no idea. Um, and that for a kid uh, kind of makes your imagination go wild. Um, and so from a young age, I kind of had an interest in, in biology. Um, I took that, uh, started my first real experience with biotech was at the NIH. Um, I kind of begged my way into an internship there. Um, and I was super fortunate to be working in a lab with people who were really supportive of learning, uh, were very patient with a 16-year-old kid uh, kind of wreaking havoc in their lab and messing up experiments. Um, so I had some extremely kind and patient mentors uh, that taught me a lot of the basics. Um, so by the time I graduated high school, I had at least some tools that I could start playing around with. Um, I took that into college, started learning a little bit more, uh, getting a little bit deeper in the field of genetics and neuroscience, continuing work uh, and studies. And then at some point, somewhere close to my junior year of college, uh, the moment came when I realized I had to decide whether or not to go to grad school. <laughs> um, and something about that wasn't quite sitting right with me. Um, a nine-year neuroscience PhD was something that I felt like I couldn't find a project that I was willing to commit myself to. Um, so in order to try to find a project that I thought would be interesting enough to do a nine-year PhD and I started reading things um, as a procrastinator. I didn't read that much about neuro <laughs> and started just reading completely unrelated things. And I stumbled upon that stat that you brought up uh, at the beginning of the show, which is that 40% of all food is wasted before it's consumed. Um, and when I read that, it was kind of a slap in the face. Um, and I got very interested in why that's happening. Um, it just seems like an astronomical number, especially in modern day society. And so at that point, you know, first it was just reading about things. It slowly turned into, I'm going to skip class to go talk to some growers out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania to learn about where my food even comes from, uh, which was another startling realization that I had no idea. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually kind of formulated the idea for Strella. Really cool, really cool background. Um, you know, Kevin, Take us a little bit um, into um, ethylene. Uh, I mean, ethylene, uh, we're, we're all familiar with it it's sort of indirectly because we have, you know, in our house, we have plenty of bananas and apples and, and guacamole <laughs> that, you know, one day is nice red and yellow and green, but then turns brown and we got to throw it out. Um, and we have this, you know, master sort of regulator chemical that all these fruits uh, like to say, hey, starting to ripen here, but we don't always see the brown stuff. It starts a little earlier than that. Talk a little bit about ethylene. We'll get into the technologies in a little bit, but take us through sort of the biology of ripening, if you would. Totally. So basically fruits communicate with each other as they ripen. Um, there's some sort of evolutionary advantage to all of the fruit on a tree ripening at the same time. 
Um, we're not entirely sure why that is yet, but uh, it is a fact. And so the way that fruits do this is they emit gases as they ripen to communicate with one another. And these gases also foster the continued maturation of the fruit itself. So it's kind of like a cyclical process. And one of the key gases um, that is used in this is ethylene gas. So like you said, we all have a very colloquial relationship with ethylene. When you put an unripe banana next to a ripe one, you see that it ripens a lot faster than if it was by itself. And this is because that ripe banana is emitting ethylene at the unripe banana and telling it to start maturing. It also is the reason why we hear that saying or phrase, uh, one bad apple spoils the bunch. And that's very true. And that's what makes a lot of that's what causes a lot of challenges in our supply chain. Um, so actually in the field where I work in, uh, we work with people who store apples um, and apples are stored in groups of 5 million at a time. So 5 million apples in a single room. And our customer has to make a decision about which room has the ripest fruit. But if you've got one bad apple that's emitting that ethylene in that room, it can cause a whole cascade of other fruit to start maturing, even if 99% of your room was really great fruit to begin with. Yeah, I was reading uh, an interview you did, we were talking about uh, sort of this this cold storage situation and, and how long, you know, as you're saying, things like apples sit there. Um, you know, you also mentioned uh, in that interview something about some of these, these storage rooms have no oxygen in them. Uh, if you walk in, you know, you drop dead if you stay, <laughs> if you stay in there too long. Um, enter your technologies, obviously, uh, well, there's a couple of components of it, and you can walk us through this. There's obviously the biosensing component of this where, hey, we got to find out which one of these batches, uh, these 5 million apples, are going to go faster than the others. But also, uh, the second part of this, a topic that we talk a lot about on the show, this internet of things that, you know, we can't be in that warehouse, we can't be in that uh, storeroom all the time, we need to do things remotely. You've brought these two things, these two areas together really elegantly with Strella. Walk us through a little bit about what you're up to with these sensors and the internet of things component, if you would. Totally. So... Basically, we have this very complicated food supply chain uh, that has a ton of different players, a lot of different interests, crops that are grown in very variable environments. And so it generates a lot of spoilage and there's a lot of issues that kind of come hand in hand with, with a complex supply chain. So our thought is that maybe if we add a little bit of data uh, to the food supply chain, not just us, but anybody with any kind of technology and any solution, um, then we can kind of combine all of these approaches and work on reducing food waste, which is that huge, huge problem that everyone I think understands is something that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So we think that by feeding a food supply chain with data, we can make it a lot smarter. And we're focusing primarily on predicting the ripeness of fruit. Um, and we do that with measuring ethylene. Um, but it's not just a sensor. Uh, like you said, we kind of couple a few things together. So we've got a sensor that detects these gases that fruits emit as they ripen. We couple that to an IoT network. Um, that makes it really easy for us to deploy sensors, especially in environments like the ones that you were describing, like oxygenless, mm -hmm. uh, filled to the brim with apples, you know, not really hospitable for human or any kind of life. Um, and then we uh, add a whole layer of data analysis on top of that, because at the end of the day, you know, just getting a signal of what a fruit is telling you is sometimes very difficult to interpret. Um, and ethylene by itself is not really something that 
a customer can use to make a decision. So then we have to go ahead and interpret all of that data into a decision that the customer can make and save money with at the end of the day. And, um, you know, I, it's interesting because I, I, several years ago, previous career, I, I, I had my feet uh, in, in the ag biotech world. And I sort of remember the strawberry world a little bit uh, that, you know, here's a, this is another really tough fruit. It, it gets fungal infections pretty bad. You know, there's some great strawberries that go in the supermarket for strawberries and the stuff that doesn't make it. Okay. That becomes jams and strawberry extracts or whatever you can do with that. When you're and I see if you want to, if you can talk about your your clients that's fine if it's all confidential at this point you know to go into that but um, when a signal comes into Strella that hey these five million apples they're wherever they may be um, it's going to happen soon you got to do something with it they're not going to make uh, the supermarket maybe we can make cider out of them or applesauce or something else what's the process there they do you get like a an email, whoa, you know, this warehouse, I got to call so-and-so. And then obviously, um, we're, we're, we're sort of a very integrated world nowadays. Not all of our stuff does come from Lancaster, but, you know, apples come from China and grapes come from Chile. And talk a little bit about sort of the, the bigger picture here of how all this works uh, together. Totally. So I'll, I'll walk you through kind of our primary market right now, cool. uh, which is in apple and pear packing. Okay. Uh, so apples and pears are um, unique in that they can be stored for a long period of time. So an apple in a grocery store can be over a year old, actually. Um, and it's not any voodoo or anything like that. Generally speaking, it's just kept in <laughs> these, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. just generally kept in really weird really space conditions, if you will. So like no oxygen, really cold temperature, like really controlled um, environments. And so if you can keep fruit in these, in these perfect environments, then they can be stored for a year. So a typical packer that we work with um, has about a hundred storage rooms. Each one is filled with about 5 million pieces of fruit. And um, the value of these rooms is huge too. It's like between one and $5 million. So the packer has to make a determination about which one of these hundred rooms contains the ripest produce. Mm. And they generally do this with um, historical data. So they know they've worked, you know, for decades in this industry. They know Farmer Joe has got the really good Granny Smith apples. I can rely on those. Um, but there's a lot of other factors that are just impossible to account for, like mm -hmm. maybe a California wildfire brought in a bunch of smoke over the orchards. And all of a sudden the gala apples fell off the trees way faster. And so now we have to do something about it. Um, so what we do is we put sensors inside these storage rooms. We monitor them as they ripen. And we can tell a packer about two months in advance of the room going bad that it's going to do so. And that time frame is really critical because two months gives a packer enough time to try to make a decision about what they need to do. So sometimes the market can't bear 5 million gala apples. No one's buying them at the time. So maybe we can make a decision with the customer about, okay, it's really the trouble is in this 25% of this room, or maybe that whole room just needs to get immediately sent out and taken care of. Um, but either way, uh, we make sure that we give our customers enough time to actually do something about it. Um, because, you know, the whole point is that we're proactive and not reactive. Mm -hmm. What has been, um, obviously, you know, you, you've, um, 
Estrella has has done very well, sort of uh, in your in your angel phase. You know, went into seed funding, uh, some very you know prominent investors. Um, what was the obviously ag? Once again, putting my uh, memory cap one here. It, ag biotech in the past was a tough sell, but it seems like you've done a pretty good job here. You have some sort of non traditional investors. Uh, when you say look at Yamaha, Mark Cuban, well, he's involved in a lot of stuff. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, you know what it was like out on the road in, in raising money for the company, uh, and then also you know you. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. I was happy to see uh, biotech enterprises, innovation of this nature in my, in my home city of Philadelphia. You're uh, a couple of miles in that direction right now. Um, talk about the Philly biotech ecosystem. Uh, hopefully you're going to hang around and, and, and build Strel up here. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, talk a little bit about how that's been in terms of uh, growing a young biotech company like you've been doing. Totally. Uh, and I'll start with the Philly piece because I am pretty passionate about that too. <laughs> um, so obviously I went to school at Penn uh, and then afterwards graduated and started the company here. And I'm actually sitting right now in Pennovation Works, which is uh, kind of a space for startups uh, to grow and build. Um, and we actually started, when, when we first started Strella, I couldn't even afford the space in uh, Penovation Works. And so I kind of squatted in a back building um, that one of the landlords very kindly pointed in my direction and what like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, no one goes there. Um, and like, wasn't really paying much rent and, you know, had that leaky roof above my head. Um, and I remember even like a kindly custodian realized that there was someone occupying that space and there was no heat or air conditioning um, and so he brought a little space heater for me. So that's kind of where Estrella started. Um, and now we've graduated to kind of the main building of Penovation and actually we're moving uh, again to a larger um, building right across the street at Penovation Works for slightly larger companies at this point. So Excellent. I think Philly provides such a fantastic ecosystem for growing companies um, because it's not super expensive. <laughs> you can start and get like a really tiny little office space and start building and growing basically immediately. There's a good combination of talent and scrappiness here. You know, you, you've got a ton of people who can do stuff or willing to get their hands dirty um, and are really doers. I think Philly is a big community of doers. Um, so it's a great place to hire people for a growing company. Um, yeah, I just think like almost a kind of got a blue collar attitude, which I think is super applicable to building a startup because yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of that, the early foundations are like kind of just, just climbing up that mountain, you know, <laughs> and like gritting through it a little bit. Um, and yeah, I think Philly's totally got that mentality. Um, also having all these different universities around is really helpful. We've got a bunch of like young, talented people coming fresh out of school, like excited to innovate and do something um, as, as well as resources like professors who can sit and hear your ideas and tell you how dumb that is <laughs> uh, from decades of experience. Um, and as well as obviously like having like financial resources um, that universities can provide to get that first bit of funding in. Sure. And the and the road showing uh, in terms of uh, uh, what it was like out there raising this uh, institutional round. Yeah, actually, the majority of our investors are on the California uh, end of things, uh, and you're totally right. Ag and ag tech is kind of like not a super traditional uh, VC landscape. If you think about a Sand Hill Road investor, you think like SaaS businesses, yeah. you know, 
fintech. Um, but I think everyone has kind of opened their eyes up to the fact that, yeah, like food waste is not only a huge problem, it's also a market um, and a very potentially lucrative market. And not only that, it uh, has a double bottom line, right? Like if you reduce food waste, you're saving people money. You're saving farmers, growers, packers, retailers, suppliers, real money. So it makes a ton of business sense, but you're also actually doing something good for the environment. And I think that's something that a lot of people can really get behind. And you know, what, once again, nothing confidential. Obviously, you're spending a lot of time focused on uh, ethylene and ripening. I, I do remember from back in the day that uh, another really uh, tough area in that uh, chain between the farm and the store was um, a post-harvest infection uh, where all sorts of other bugs that you don't think about in the field start eating away at stuff. Uh, any other interesting um, uh, components of this value chain that you're Obviously, you focus on ethylene now, but things to keep you up at night, think, wow, you know, we could go after that in a couple of years or, or something uh, else uh, in, along this value chain of events. Totally. Um, so you're asking me for our secrets. No, I'm joking. No, I'm, I'm yeah. totally joking. No, I think what's been really, like, inspiring me a lot lately has been thinking about how to connect different players in the supply yeah. chain. So like, for example, the grower, they, the fruit is their baby, you know, they know so much about it. They've kind of been with it from day one. They have a lot of information about it. The further down you go, the less information you have. So like by the time you get to Walmart, you know, Walmart's kind of getting random apples. They know roughly where they came from. They know roughly when they were picked maybe, um, but just really don't have too much data about this stuff. And mm -hmm. A lot of the players in, in the supply chain are kind of siloed and like very focused on their day-to-day -day job and life, which makes a lot of sense because it's super hard. Um, but I'm really interested in seeing what would happen if we were able to interconnect all these different players uh, with data um, and see how we can build and layer biz better business decisions on top of all of that information that's flowing from farm to fork, if you will. Very cool. Um Kevin, obviously, you know, um, you've, you know, you've been over at Penn, you, you've had great professors along the way, um, you, you have some partners in this uh, that have been with you. Uh, take a little time just to mention uh, influencers, mentors, uh, somebody in the molecular biology department, someone at the Wharton School, everyone that sort of helped you out and, and, and kept you uh uh, motivated uh, on this path uh, that wasn't, hey, this wasn't a dumb idea. This is a really good idea to start a business. Uh, take some time to shout out to whoever you want. Yeah, totally. So, well, I think the first one is obvious, obviously the Wharton Undergraduate Entrepreneurship Department. Um, so Valentina Gutorova and Jill Anik uh, are kind of the leaders of the entrepreneurship scene uh, at Penn. They do such a fantastic job with compiling resources and people and everything you could possibly need um, and kind of creating that uh, fostering environment for uh, student entrepreneurs. Um, and they've always had their doors open and listened to all those pitches and early things. Um, Professor Jeffrey Babin, um, who teaches um, entrepreneurship, uh, does an engineering entrepreneurship minor at Penn. Um, also fantastic person, along with uh, Thomas Castle, who also teaches engineering entrepreneurship at Penn, were kind of the first people I ever really 
spoke to and heard about business from ever in my life. Um, and I still uh, keep in touch with them and uh, they're, they're still cheerleading me on, <laughs> which is always super great. Um, I've been through a number of people at the biology department. So just in general, thanks to the whole bio department for helping me out and listening to me talk uh, probably in a very non-educated way about plant biology <laughs> uh, and, and willing to listen. Um, trying to think who else. Yeah, there's just been so many people, honestly, like starting a business, it takes a whole village <laughs> for sure. That it does, but you're doing a really good job of it. So it's, it's very impressive. Um, final uh, question, Catherine, um, while you're solving, you know, this major food loss uh, issue and, and saving the environment and the fresh water and everything, are you getting any fencing uh, time in? You know, I'm really not. Uh, I haven't picked up an Epe, which is my uh, weapon style uh, since I graduated, which is a little bit sad. Although I think honestly, after doing four years of, you know, NCAA sports, I needed a break. So yeah. I've just been hitting the gym, sticking with that, but I'll get back to it. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, guys, once again, this is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating listening to this story um, and, and watching it grow. Uh, as I said, uh, being in Philly, I, I've enjoyed reading about you uh, along the way. So it's really exciting. Um, the, uh, for everybody that's uh, going to be listening to this particular episode uh, on the podcast or watching uh, on the YouTube channel, you've been listening to Catherine Sizov, uh, founder of Strella Biotechnology, doing really fascinating things with biosensing, Internet of Things, uh, and once again, trying to save a trillion dollars annually from all this food that we waste. Um, Catherine, it's, it's been a really fun time talking to you, really wishing you the best with all of this. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And as we say on our show, thank you for helping to create a better tomorrow uh, through what you're doing. It was a really great time talking to you. Thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure.